Good afternoon. Um, my name is Ahmet Tekeloğlu. I'm with the Meydan with the Ali Buralak Center for Global Islamic Studies at George Mason University. It's our great honor to have Christian Peterson here at George Mason uh, with us. We first got connected uh, when we started the Meydan. Uh, Christian Peterson actually one of the first generous contributors to the Meydan with a piece on, on Jack Shaheen and, and his legacy. Um, and, you know, since then he's been a supporter of uh, the project and his academic interests are, are quite varied. Um, his contribution to us was on Muslims and cinema. And his next book is on this uh, theme, Cinematic Lives of Muslims. Uh, maybe we'll hear some <laughs> bits about that you know, in the Q&A session. But today he's with us to share uh, his research on Islam in China. His book that came out of Oxford University Press in 2017, uh, Interpreting Islam in China, Pilgrimage, Scripture, and the Language in the Han Kitab. Uh, and this presentation is, is based off of that. Uh, and we are looking forward to this. The theme, as you know, is, is, is very much on a hot agenda item these days with different you know, aspects. And I'm sure there will be things that we'll know with relevance to that. Uh, we are hoping to build uh, a larger program, maybe a day-long work workshop or conference down the line uh, with Christian on this larger theme. Uh, but today, without further ado, I will leave the floor to, to Christian Peterson from Old Dominion University. Thank you again for joining us, uh, Christian. Um, your bio um, is over here. As, as I said, he is at Old Dominion University, uh, and his book came out in 2017. Uh, with a varied, you know, academic interest, so it's really our honor uh, to have you here as someone who is engaged with Islamic studies from a broad perspective. Uh, new books in Islamic studies network. You might be familiar with Christian's voice, maybe <laughs> on uh, the, the podcast, uh, on the interviews that he conducts with leading scholars uh, from within the field, and it's really nice to put a face to this and and listen from you in person. Thank you so much, Christian. Yeah, thank you very much. Uh, yeah, so let me let me thank uh, all the organizers for inviting me. It's very generous, and I appreciate it very much. And thank you, Anne, for helping me get here and uh, have a nice visit. Um, and I appreciate all of you guys coming to uh, to hear me and hear hear about this topic. Um, it is something that has been in the news a lot. Um, I focus on kind of the pre-modern history, so I don't necessarily uh, do work on some of the political stuff uh, that's happening today. However, that topic always seems to come up <laughs> after we start to have some discussion. Um, but uh, I, I want to talk a little bit about uh, the intellectual history that I look at in the book. Um, but for uh, almost every time I, I tell people that I study Islam in China, people always ask, like, there's Muslims in China? This is like <laughs> an immediate reaction I always get. So. Um, and even for people that are uh, in Islamic studies, I, I often find that uh, the, the kind of history of uh, how this community was shaped and how it uh, was constructed in the way it was um, isn't uh, very well known. So I, I usually kind of begin by uh, kind of giving us a short genealogy of how this community that started to write these uh, Islamic texts in Chinese language, um, where they came from, kind of how, how they were constructed. Um, so, uh, just to kind of give you a, a short uh, a primer on this, um, 
we, we've all heard of the Silk Road, and uh, from the time of Muhammad and even prior to that, Persians, Arabs were, were going to China um, by the land Silk Road, but also uh, by the sea route. Um, and they were uh, most often merchants in uh, cosmopolitan cities, both in places like Chang'an, which is up in the top right corner, um, which was the capital of the Tang Dynasty. Um, and this is, this is present-day Xi'an, if anyone's familiar with uh, China today. Uh, and the Tang Dynasty is uh, happening about the same time uh, as the life of Muhammad. Um, so very soon after, we have uh, Muslims going, uh, tra uh, trading in Chang'an, trading in places along the southeast coast, um, in places like um, Guangzhou uh, or Canton, uh, places like Chuanzhou, where there's a large uh, mosque uh, that's still there. It's now a museum, but it's, it's still there from this early period. And then there are some other uh, central Chinese cities like uh, Kaifeng um, and a few others that had uh, small populations of primarily Muslim merchants. Um, so this was happening roughly from about the, the, the 7th, 8th century. We have Muslims uh, kind of recorded in these areas. Uh, up until about the 12th, 13th century. Um, during this early period, Muslims are, uh, are still, uh, quote-unquote, foreign in a sense. Um, they primarily live in kind of uh, secluded uh, quarters. They were called fanka or, or foreign quarters. Um, and they generally regulated themselves. Uh, there wasn't a lot of, um, we might say, cultural interaction. It was primarily uh, for trade, but then... Um, but then Arabs and Persians were, were primarily uh, inwardly focusing on their own um, small communities that were in these places. Where we start, uh, so these communities are, are often small, right? We're, we're talking about uh, small, small numbers at this time. Um, where we start to have a kind of greater influx of Muslims in uh, what we think of as China um, happens during uh, the Mongol period. Um, during the Mongol period, um, we have lots of different things happening. Uh, one, we have the disintegration of uh, borders uh, in the sense that people were able to uh, establish uh, networks outside of just trade. So we have um, educational networks in terms of uh, traditional Islamic learning. Um, we also have a kind of professional diaspora in a sense where we have uh, Mongol elites, right, uh, bring in primarily Central Asian Muslims um, as a kind of administrative class. Um, and we're talking uh, thousands and thousands of Central Asians that are um, all through, this is uh, the, the Chinese part of the Mongol dynasty is uh, known as the Yuan. Right? So uh, all throughout the Yuan um, geographic area, we have Central Asians coming in uh, at this administrative class. We also have a bunch of uh, uh, Muslim professionals coming in, geographers, astronomers, uh, map makers, um, in addition to artisans and musicians and these kind of things. Um, so during this time, um, there's estimates that the, the Muslim population was about 5% of the overall population uh, within the Yuan, which uh, still is not a lot, uh, but just to kind of give you a, a comparison, um, it's just around 1% today of the amount of Muslims in, in China today. So um, comparatively, it's, it's rather large. 
and socially they had this kind of uh, elite uh, position. Um, With the um, overthrow of the Yuan and the founding of the Ming Dynasty, the Ming Dynasty was founded by um, Han Chinese. Han is usually what we think of when we think of Chinese, uh, the, the, the ethnicity. Um, so uh, initially there were some, um, uh, sometimes people call Han chauvinism in the sense that there was uh, a, a kind of um, response to um, non-Han that were in this kind of uh, socially high position uh, above uh, the Han under the, the Mongols. And now there are uh, policies that are set up to kind of uh, establish um, or to, to increase acculturation of uh, non-Han people. So we have things like um, uh, the, the borders are generally closed for kind of everyday people. Uh, so connections that the now settled Central Asians might have with their traditional homelands were uh, basically cut off. Um, any kind of international exchange was happening through official venues. Um, so I, I'm not trying to say that the Ming uh, were like only uh, internally focused, um, but kind of everyday people, right? And especially in terms of Islamic education, this would have affected that and limited them uh, to kind of the, the Chinese sphere. Um, but we have policies like um, uh, forcing um, Muslims to intermarry with Han Chinese, um, the adoption of Chinese traditional dress, uh, the adoption of Chinese language. Um, so there, there is, under the Ming, this kind of increase in um, becoming um, Chinese citizens, right, quote unquote. Um, after a few generations of, uh, of this kind, of, these kind of policies, um, Muslim families uh, are beginning to, um, you know, from from an outsider's perspective, uh, look look very much Chinese, right? They are speaking Chinese. They're dressing this way. Um, we we start to have communities losing touch with uh, Arabic or Persian uh, uh, language capabilities. Um, we have this disconnect from traditional centers of learning. Um, and it's during the late uh, Ming period uh, that we start to have um, kind of a, uh, a call from Muslims for an increase in uh, traditional Islamic learning. And this is where my folks, uh, the, the story kind of starts to begin for them. Um, so. Uh, this is Shanxi province. This is where uh, Xi'an is today, right, uh, right here. Um, in this, uh, this is usually referred to as Northwest China. In Northwest China, uh, the Muslim uh, communities that are there are um, largely in Muslim-majority contexts, uh, meaning that villages uh, uh, were uh, primarily made up of Muslims, right, where, where Muslims lived. Um, versus uh, the coastal regions where Muslims certainly existed, but they were in a minority context uh, in, in terms of population. Um, so in Northwest China, uh, Muslims were generally able to continue everyday practice, right? These kind of things were not uh, disrupted too much. Um, but we do start to have a, a, a call for um, uh, kind of higher levels of Islamic learning. 
And uh, this is where uh, this figure Hu Dongzhou comes into the picture. So Hu Dongzhou um, lived in Shanxi, and he uh, interacted with his local religious leaders and uh, went under um, basically kind of like an ad hoc type of uh, education, right? There was no established curriculum. There was no kind of uh, set goals. Um, and for him, uh, right, as we're told, uh, the narratives about Hu Dongzhou, uh, he felt that this was inadequate. And so what this motivated him to do was to go on Hajj. And so he went to Mecca. He spent time there. And uh, one of the important things he did, uh, in addition to uh, studying with religious professionals in Arabia, was uh, come back with texts, uh, Arabic and Persian texts. Um, and these, many of these texts uh, are well known throughout Muslim communities uh, globally. Um, and when he returned to China, um, what he did was he established um, the Jingtang Jiaoyu, what's called, uh, we render a scripture hall education. So scripture hall education uh, did uh, a few things that really enabled uh, a Islamic educational network um, and thereby these this textual uh, canon that I look at to be established. Um, so the uh, scripture hall education was uh, established revolving around a set of texts that he brought back with him. Um, many of these, uh, they're about half Arabic, half Persian. Uh, many of them were, uh, we would probably call them um, philosophical Sufism, perhaps might be a good way to classify them. Maybe not, I don't know. Um, there are some tafsir. Uh, there, um, there aren't a lot of legal texts um, in this tradition. Um, they're primarily uh, what we might think of Sufi, theological, or uh, kind of traditional scriptures. Uh, so, but there was a formalized curriculum established within this system. Hu um, Dongzhou was able to um, get the community to support financially students. Um, so now, instead of having kind of an ad hoc type of education, uh, people were able to come um, and dedicate themselves to the cur this curriculum. Um, and the other part was uh, the inclusion of Chinese language as a uh, for instruction, right? So while many of these people were uh, learning or literate in Persian and Arabic, um, Chinese still was their their mother tongue in terms of communication. So. Um, through the scripture hall education system, uh, who started to attract students from throughout China, um, very widely actually, and uh, once his students started to pass through this curriculum, they often returned to wherever they came from and then would re replicate this system. And where it really took off in terms of a uh, kind of independent textual production is in uh, uh, the city of Nanjing. So in Nanjing, we have a very different type of social makeup. Um, Muslims in Nanjing are a minority at this time. Um, they are very much uh, participating in um, what we would think of as Chinese kind of cultural practices. So many people were uh, administrators, uh, serving in uh, pub kind of public uh, roles. And uh, in order to do this, they would have to pass a civil service exam. Um, and the civil, civil service exam, is, as many of you may know, 
um, is made up of uh, mastering basically uh, a Confucian, uh, and at this time kind of a Neo-Confucian textual canon. So the Muslims, uh, right, the educated elite in Nanjing that were Muslims um, were conversant in Neo-Confucian discourse, uh, very often in kind of uh, popular Buddhist discourses or Taoist discourses. Um, and so when these folks started to you know, they're highly educated in general, but they felt that their knowledge of their own tradition was uh, kind of failing. When they would participate in uh, the system, uh, they, they were kind of bringing all of that to the table. And uh, what, what we have is uh, very soon after uh, this begins, we have the production of uh, texts that are uh, Islamic in nature, and, and this I mean by, uh, you know, they're dealing with Islamic theology or philosophy or these things. Um, I'm not necessarily saying that uh, Muslims in China never wrote texts before. There are, uh, for example, under the Mongols, there are some Muslim poets uh, writing poetry in Chinese, but it's, it's basically Chinese poetry. It's not Islamic in nature. Uh, so at this time, we start to have texts uh, that are... Uh, using Buddhist, Taoist, Confucian terminology uh, to explain, uh, very often, the technical vocabulary found in Persian and Arabic uh, Islamic texts. Um, so just to kind of give you a flavor of this, uh, prophets become sages, saints become worthies, scriptures become classics, and when they're talking about kind of Islam in general in relation to Muhammad, um, we often have this phrase, the Tao of the utmost sage, or the Tao of the most sagely. Um, so depending on if you're familiar with the Chinese side or the Islamic side, you, you, you might see how these can kind of uh, cross back and forth. You guys with me? All right. So um, what, what I do is I, I uh, looked at uh, three main figures within this Han Kitab tradition. Um, so Wang Dayu was the, the first individual to write these Islamic texts um, in Chinese. Um, Lu Zhe becomes, uh, for, for many people, he becomes the pinnacle of this tradition, uh, both in kind of the volume that he wrote, but also in the kind of sophistication that he, he brought to it, uh, both in the kind of blending of uh, kind of Chinese discourses and Islamic discourses, uh, but also in kind of the, the structure of his uh, textual output. And then Ma Dushin um, is really kind of the person I started with uh, because he does many things that are kind of outside of the norm, but um, unless you kind of put him in relation to these other figures, it, it didn't necessarily seem as uh, so important. So, um, for example, Ma Dushin was the first uh, Sino-Muslim to write a Hajj diary. Um, so he wasn't, of course, right, we already talked about Hu Zhongzhou, he wasn't the first or only to, to go on Hajj, uh, but he was the first to write this systematic uh, uh, Hajj diary, um, which other Muslims in other geographic areas are also producing at this time. Um, he was also the first Sino-Muslim to try to um, translate the whole Quran um, into Chinese. Um, so of course, uh, these other figures, Wang and Lu and, and many others, would render passages or verses of the Quran uh, within their theological texts but uh, he, he set out to systematically translate the Quran from beginning to end. And then the, the last thing that he does is he, uh, he, he starts to write Arabic language texts 
for Sino-Muslims within his uh, educational uh, context. Uh, so par part of this, I think, is uh, the, the changing kind of global dynamics, um, the relationship that uh, uh, Muslims in China are having uh, with other Muslims, uh, especially in South Asia, but then also in the context of the Middle East. Uh, and Madoshin is also, he's uh, geographically located uh, in a different region where it's kind of in between. So he's in, if you can kind of remember that map, uh, he's down here in southwest China in Yunnan. So it's right near uh, Laos, uh, Burma, right? These places, Thailand. Um, and was traditionally oriented to that region in terms of trade and other kind of cultural context. Uh, so he does have a little bit of a different uh, cultural context, uh, but uh, I see him really as this interesting figure who's kind of blending kind of some of the, the, the themes or patterns that we see uh, globally among Muslims at this time. Um, but then he's also um, very much, um, uh, I don't know a better word, a fan of this kind of earlier, uh, very uh, specific Chinese tradition of explaining Islam. Uh, so for, for me, he kind of fits in, in between here. Uh, so just to kind of give you a little bit, and then, and then I kind of want to walk you through one or two uh, examples of what they do in a little more detail. But um, Wang Yu, he has uh, one major text, this true explanation of the Orthodox teaching. Um, what he does in this text is uh, he has 40 chapters. Uh, the first 20 are dealing with theological issues. So uh, what is the nature of God? Uh, what is the nature of uh, faith? Um, you know, how, how do we uh, deal with uh, um, issues of um, self-cultivation, these kind of things? Um, the second half of this text deals with more practical issues uh, in terms of marriage or fasting. Um, and even in those, he's still kind of giving us not necessarily like a how-to, but more of a, a kind of an inner explanation of why we would fast or why marriage is constructed in the particular way. And he does this, he, he uses this language of a primarily Neo-Confucian uh, kind of doctrine. And for, for any of you that are familiar with uh, kind of the Chinese context, um, you'll notice this title. So he has a, a short text called uh, The Great Learning of Islam. And this, this title, Dashui, here, um, is actually one of the, the four Confucian classics that's used in that uh, curriculum I was talking about earlier. So he's kind of very clearly here blending these two traditions, right? Anyone that was cultivated in this uh, kind of Chinese cultural context would, would hear Dashui and have immediate uh, affiliation with them. Um, this, this, this phrase here, Qingden, uh, just as an aside, um, very often gets rendered uh, as Islam in a kind of textual tradition. Uh, but for those of you who maybe have uh, gone to China, this is uh, what uh, basically halal restaurants uh, the Qingdian restaurants. Um, and mosques are called Qingdian Se. Uh, Se is the character for a temple, basically. Uh, same character for a Buddhist temple, for example. So uh, this, this phrase, it means pure and true in a, a kind of literal sense. Uh, but it kind of takes on all these connotations uh, in this Islamic context. So uh, Luger uh, wrote tons and tons of stuff. Um, the, the reason why people really think that he's uh, um, kind of outstanding is this, uh, what's called the Tianfang Chil uh, Trilogy. Uh, so in, in this character here, these two characters, Tianfang, uh, 
literally we can translate it or render it as like heavenly square, something like this. Um, in some earlier texts, um, it's referring to the Kaaba itself. Um, but usually it's rendered uh, in English as Islam. Um, and so these three texts um, are very, they're all very large texts. Um, one dealing with metaphysics, one dealing with ritual. Um, and then the final one, this veritable record of the most sagely of Islam, is a biography of the Prophet. And for those of you familiar with Islam, we'll very clearly see uh, kind of the tripartite um, outline of the tradition presented in the Hadith of Gabriel here, right? Where we have uh, the idea of what is Islam, right? What is Imam? And then what, how, how do we present this in the most beautiful way, right? Through the example of the Prophet as uh, the perfected human being, right? So, uh, Lou is very clever in this construction, um, and in, in each of these texts, right, he goes into great detail, um, outlining both kind of the, the literal, right, so he, uh, in one, his uh, section on the pilgrimage, he goes through and he describes uh, the various rituals you do at different times, um, he describes the various locations that you would be at, uh, but then also gives us this kind of inner or kind of uh, uh, theological meaning of these practices. Uh, as well. And he's got all sorts of other cool texts. He has another one where um, he basically gives us the, the inner meaning, meaning of Arabic letters. Um, and, you know, he says, you know, Elif means this, and Ba means this, and then he, he goes through all this, and then he says, and basically the most uh, perfect word is Muhammad, right? And he says, and when we have the letters of Muhammad, Right? and we put them together, it, it exemplifies uh, this perfected human being. And uh, many, of, you know, most of you probably know, right, Arabic is written right to left. Um, some of you may know that Chinese traditionally is written uh, top down. So what he did, which is really, really, which is really cool, I think, um, is right, he, he took the Arabic and wrote it from top down. And if you can imagine the letters of Muhammad, right, you, you have a head, and he kind of, Constructs in his way that you have arms and then you have the legs and it looks like a little person uh, It's really really fascinating um, And gives us this kind of inner meaning so he he he's, he, he, he deserves the all the accolades in, in many ways um, The final figure though um, as I mentioned right he he also has a very large corpus of text that he wrote um, What drew me to him were these kind of uh, very uh, idiosyncratic things within the Chinese sexual tradition in terms of uh, writing in Arabic for his Chinese uh, audience, uh, recording his Hajj pilgrimage, um, and then uh, translating the Quran. Um, unfortunately, he was only able to translate the first couple chapters um, because another part of the kind of history of this time was uh, there was a small Islamic state established in uh, Yunnan province and uh, the, the Dali Sultanate. Uh, situated in the city of Delhi, and he served as basically the, the chief kind of uh, religious professional of the community. And uh, the Qing dynasty, who was ruling at that time, uh, a Manchu government, um, some of you may know, this is, uh, they were expanding their borders, right? So if you remember the, that picture of the Ming, it's much smaller than what we think of China today. Um, and partly, the Qing dynasty expanded to the borders that we, we it's basically the same borders that we have for uh, contemporary China. So they expanded in the south, they expanded out west, they expanded into Xinjiang, which is uh, where the Uyghurs are, um, 
all around the same time, mid-1700s uh, into the 1800s. And uh, in 1874, they uh, basically conquered this small Islamic state, um, and Mahdushin, along with many others, were executed. So uh, that unfortunately ended his, his career. Um, so um, I want to kind of look at, uh, in a little more detail, while well, you guys are still with me, I'm not boring you yet, um, in terms of uh, translating the Quran. Um, and we, we have kind of different modes of translation in, in China. Um, first, we have uh, usually what are called extract translations. Um, and th these are the types that uh, Wang Daiyu and Lu Zhi would be doing. Um, in the sense that they might make some theological point and then use a Quranic passage to kind of justify or legitimate that point. Or uh, vice versa, they might take some uh, Quranic passage, which then allows them to kind of, uh, kind of expand on a theme uh, that was present in that. Um, but for the most part, uh, they're, they're using the Quran piecemeal um, even, even uh, in Wang Daoyu's work, we see uh, the same passage rendered in different ways uh, in different uh, texts. Um, so it's not, it's not a kind of systematic type of translation. Um, but th this type is present from these, the, the earliest texts within this tradition. Um, later, uh, around the time of Mahdishin in the late 19th and then into the 20th century, we, we have partial translations. Uh, that seem to be more um, aimed at, uh, I guess, uh, as a guide or a kind of a uh, handle to um, get into actual uh, Arabic Quranic reading. Uh, so these look somewhat like this, uh, and what they do often is they'll use a kind of transliteration system using Chinese characters that would render the spoken Arabic. Um, and then they often uh, kind of put a short translation. So there's this kind of dual uh, translation process happening, one uh, sonically and then one kind of in a, in a meaning-wise. Um, and then, of course, we have uh, full translations, which uh, Madushin is the first uh, Sino-Muslim to do this. Um, of course, he was not able to complete it. Um, this task gets taken up again in the early 20th century, um, and some of the, the earliest translations are actually made by non-Muslims, um, and they're, they weren't really uh, used by the community or taken up. Um, they're not very good either. Uh, the, I think the first full one uh, was actually a translation from a Japanese translation of a English Right? So it went from Arabic to English to Japanese to Chinese. Uh, so we don't have until really the, uh, the 30s, 1930s, uh, the, the first uh, Muslim-produced uh, uh, Chinese translation of the Quran. And then we have uh, just over about a dozen uh, after that up until uh, the present. Um, all right, so I'm going to look. Uh, hopefully I'm not talking here too long. But um, so I want to look at uh, a couple of specific renderings just to kind of give you an idea of a little bit of uh, of this. And because it's a little more detail, I'm gonna I'm gonna read. So forgive me if I start to bore you in that way. But um, as you would expect, Ma began um, with the opening ch chapter, Surah Al-Fatiha. 
Um, and, uh, you know, I know most of you know this, so I, I haven't rendered it uh, or given you the Arabic, but you can kind of visualize that in your head. Um, but um, Ma renders this, um, well, first he starts with the uh, rendering of Al-Fatiha as Fadhi Hai. So um, this happens occasionally, these kind of uh, transliterations, rather than trying to you know, he could have used some characters that meant something like the opening. Uh, but he kept this kind of sonic part of it. Um, after that, he says, uh, I recite the most beneficent, the most intimate, the true Lord's name, and begin. This praise all returns to the most revered and respected, and transforms and nourishes uh, all the worlds. The most beneficent, the most intimate, controller of the true world, serve alone the most revered and respected one. Lead your foolish servant to the straight path, right? And this, I'll talk a little bit about this uh, term in a minute. But that could be rendered a correct path, straight path, um, several things. Um, as for the straight path, the true Lord especially entrusts a great responsibility, not for those who excessively transgress, also not for those who do not turn back. So Ma was careful to follow the flow of the Arabic Quran and also able to skillfully integrate elements of classical Chinese learning in his rendition, thus making it accessible and meaning to uh, his sinified Muslim audience. So throughout the translation, Ma referred to God as true Lord, this, this term Janzai, um, a term that was presented in Zhuangzi, who is an early philosophical Taoist, um, uh, and this text is widely known in China and let alone uh, in the English-speaking world now. Uh, so in Zhuangzi's famous passage, he says, if I were no other, there would be no I. If there were no I, there would be nothing to apprehend the other. This is near the mark, but I do not know what causes it to be so. It seems as though there is a true Lord, a Zhuangzi, but there is no particular evidence of it. We may have faith in its ability to function, but cannot say its form. It has attributes, but is without form. So much of Zhuangzi's philosophy was adapted in Sino-Islamic works to express the, the uh, principles of Islam. And here we see the conception of a true Lord uh, coincided with the Islamic understanding of a powerful overseer who is tangibly non-existent in himself, but necessary for existence. In dis, uh, discussing the straight past, Sirat al-Mustaqim, Ma used an equivalent term, Zhonglu, this term Zhonglu, uh, which can be, we can render orthodox, correct, proper, um, or straight path. Um, so Mencius, uh, who was the second uh, intellectual within the Confucian tradition, discussed the Zhonglu in his discourse on proper action. He explained, quote, Benevolence is man's peaceful abode, and rightness is his Zhonglu, his proper or right path. It is indeed lamentable for anyone not to live in his peaceful abode and not to follow his straight path. Uh, again, Mencius's words rang true for Ma, who embraced transmitting the gravity of following God's way. And for anyone familiar with Chinese classics, which would have been this, this audience, um, Muncius's Zhonglu would arouse a complete notion of a life of benevolence and ethically uh, and, and righteousness. This would con convey corresponding Islamic principles of virtuous and ethically moral action. 
which would thereby be significant both in the Chinese and the Islamic context. Um, the coming together of Islamic and Chinese symbols presented within the Quran's opening chapter are further highlighted by uh, Ma's rendering of the Arabic term deen, uh, which it occurs a handful of times in the, the first few chapters that he renders. Uh, deen, as many of you know, is generally understood to encompass the theological and operational characteristics that make up what we understand to be the tradition of Islam. It is most familiar, perhaps, uh, through the Quranic dictum, uh, there is no compulsion uh, in religion. Right? And for my co-religious studies people, we could <laughs> tackle that one too, right? Should it be rendered religion? The term deen can mean obedience, devotion, submission, uh, following a particular law or ordinance, um, an inherited system of rites or ceremonies. Um, the Quranic vision presented what uh, is called deen al-haq, Right, the religion of truth, uh, and references to Dean Ibrahim, Abrahamic Dean. Um, as expressed above, uh, in, and in many, oh, right, uh, in many contemporary English renderings, we see it rendered as religion as well. Um, in his translation of the Quran, Mahdushin repeatedly employed the term Dao uh, to render Dean into Chinese, and many of you may already be familiar with this term as well. Um, Dao is equally complex term that has uh, been perpetually reinterpreted throughout history. In pre-Han philosophical discourse, it, mean, uh, it can mean way, path, road, guide, or lead. Uh, for example, the Analects of Confucius, uh, Dao is a guiding principle, pattern, formula, or teaching, which is central to some action or behavior, lending towards societal or personal transformation. Mencius described the Tao as the proper man manner of activity of the ancient sages. Uh, Tao was also descriptive of natural activities, such as the Tao of water, the Tao of heaven, the Tao of humans. In early philosophical Taoist texts, the term was, was unclear, carrying a variety of connotations. The Tao Te Ching, this kind of initial text in the, the Taoist tradition, declares the Tao is nameless, ineffable, empty, indistinct, and natural. The Tao is a productive force, eternal, without beginning or end, which is the source of creation arising before heaven and earth, producing and sustaining beings by generating the one, and thus um, leading to the multiplicity of creation. The Tao is something underlying the transformation of creation, the process regulating the spontaneous cycles of the cosmos, and the basis for natural order itself. Um, if an individual can harness this organic activity, they will embody the Tao and act in accordance with it. Therefore, from a general perspective, the Tao encompasses the dual meaning of both, both source and process uh, in the operation of the cosmos. So, uh, returning to this well-known verse, uh, there is no compulsion in religion, Ma rendered it the way, or uh, the Tao, lacks compulsion. Uh, he encountered the term deem on a number of instances in this translation, so he repeated it, uh, this rendering of deen as Tao, in verse 2, 193. Uh, the way, or the Tao, returns to the true, where the original uh, or rendering of the original Arabic reads, the religion belongs to God. Uh, later in verse 319, uh, religion by God is submission, Ma translated the passage 
The way or Tao is the guideline of the true Lord's teaching. And perhaps some of you can school me on my uh, use of uh, trans English translations of the, the Arabic. Um, this general direction was duplicated in verse 2, 132, but the direct correlation between the Arabic and the Chinese terminology is a little more fluid. So uh, here Ma rendered the passage, O sons, originally the true Lord favored the multitudes with a special gift of the orthodox teaching. Die after you undertake hearing the way. On this occasion, uh, in the excerpt, uh, Verily God has chosen Aldine for you, Ma equated Aldine with this phrase, the orthodox teaching, Zhong Jiao. Um, so here, Ma was much more direct in his delineation of Islam as a specific tradition. Um, Zhong Jiao delimited his discussion to a particular Tao or a particular way, which he understood as being transmitted uh, through time after its revelation from God. Um, and those of you that are uh, have good memories or real quick, um, you may notice that Wang Dayu's primary text had this phrase, Zhong Jiao, uh, the true explanation uh, uh, of the uh, orthodox teaching, right? He had this in his phrase. Um, in the second portion of the verse 2.132, therefore die not unless you are those who have uh, surrendered, Ma used Tao to evoke the, the meaning of uh, being a Muslim, a Muslimun. One who has submitted to God's pronouncement, uh, pronouncement of beliefs and practices was governed by a way, by a Tao, in the broad sense of a teaching. So accordingly, Ma identified uh, being a Muslim with following a particular Tao, which he equated with Islam, and what he, in this rendering, uh, uh, in this uh, verse, rendered the orthodox teaching. So in general, Dean and Tao were perceived as, as parallel concepts, uh, the simultaneous pattern evolving and orchestration of the cosmos, each directed by the organic and natural behaviors of people in accordance with the unfolding of creation. By following the patterns of Dean and Tao, individuals act in harmony with the universe, thus submitting to God's natural world and following its way or mode of activity. Um, Therefore, the individual uh, awareness of the world, whether it's from a, a Chinese or an Islamic perspective, was in tune with God's creation and the principles uh, guiding the universe. Uh, for Ma, both Dean and Tao uh, represent the inherited system of natural behaviors that accords with God's productive force. If one obeys these patterns and devotes himself or herself to these teachings and formulas, they will be guided and led along the worn path of ancient sages and prophets leading towards societal and personal transformation. So altogether, Ma's contribution uh, was essential uh, for a globalizing community of Sino-Muslims who were expanding their linguistic and geographical uh, boundaries in order to participate in contemporary Muslim di dialogues. And this is, uh, of course, in kind of relation to both these Arabic texts that he was teaching um, and with his guidance uh, kind of in a practical way uh, provided through his Hajj uh, di uh, diary. Um, so to, to close here, um, we see in Sino-Islamic interpretations of the Quran, um, in this case exemplified by, by Ma'adushin, that Sino-Muslims drew upon traditional Arabic-Islamic sources 
while simultaneously formulating a regional religious discourse. Uh, knowledge of the Quran and Arabic were reciprocal uh, and essential in establishing this discourse, but so was familiarity with the Chinese liter literary tradition and text. Translations worked on several registers, adding new meaning with each degree of a reader's preparedness. Overall, the reciprocal relationship between interpretation and translation in the Chinese context reveals a unique interpretive world where the local cultural linguistics setting serves as the infrastructure for building a deeper understanding of this universal scripture. And that's where I'll wrap it up. And of course, I'm happy to answer any questions you might have. So thank you.